Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Jean and Jane. I don't know if I'm unhappy because I'm not free or if I'm not free because I'm unhappy. I say our responsibility as Americans is to be concerned about what our country is doing. The suicide of Jean Seberg, the young actress from Iowa. Are you ready to do the workout? This week, we will catch up with Jean Seberg immediately after the death of her daughter, Nina. In the following weeks, months, and years, Jean's grief, anxiety, and paranoia combined to be fairly debilitating. She'd be in and out of mental health clinics for the rest of her life, and the quality of movies that she'd be offered would steadily decline. But she still held out hope that things would get better. And they did, for a while, during her third marriage. After Jean's portion of the story, we will move over to Jane Fonda, her response to the backlash to her Vietnam activism, her and Tom Hayden's attempts to rehab their images, and the Hollywood comeback that allowed Jane to make political cinema under the guise of pleasing crowds. Join us, won't you, for Chapter 8 of Jean and Jane. Jean Seberg's daughter, Nina, died on her second day alive. While the baby was still in an incubator, fighting to stay alive, Romain Gary, Jean's ex-husband and the man who had taken responsibility for the child, began writing a furious open letter, which was to be published in the French paper Francois. In this letter, he squarely placed the blame for Nina's premature birth on Newsweek magazine. He wrote, Since the age of 14, this daughter of the Middle West has supported the right to dignity of blacks of her country. Therefore, it was necessary at all costs to explain her horror of racism, 
bisexual penchants. It was necessary at all costs to prove that a white woman, who still believed in the American dream of justice and fraternity, the dream of Jefferson and Lincoln, was actually interested in blacks because they are, in the minds of crazed racists, the tempting symbols of forbidden fruit. The daughter Jean had given birth to, who was then, Roman wrote, struggling against death with all of her 1,700 grams of white flesh, is mine by all the laws of France. But Newsweek cares little for the laws of our country. The open letter ended with three terse, chilling sentences. August 25, 6 o'clock in the morning. The doctor has just come in. The child is dead. Jean was not herself 100% sure that Newsweek, in causing her undeniable anguish in printing false rumors about the father of her baby, was fully responsible for Nina's death. Jean felt guilty about her suicide attempt, and she'd always wonder if the sleeping pills that had been pumped from her stomach had killed her baby. Nina was embalmed in Geneva, where Jean checked into a hotel room, alone, to recuperate from her cesarean and everything else. She didn't want to go outside because she believed there were enemies everywhere. During her convalescence, she decided she wanted to take Nina home to Iowa. On the plane, sitting in first class with her bodyguard, Jean took a few volumes with her whiskey. After sleeping for a bit, she went to the bathroom. She came running out a few minutes later, wearing only the unraveling bandages from her cesarean, screaming that the plane was being hijacked. She took more volumes, and during a layover in Chicago, she spotted a black police officer and started yelling at him. Traitor! You're black! How can you be a cop? When she finally made it home to her parents' house in Marshalltown, Jean wrote two letters. The first was to Huey Newton's lawyer to officially withdraw her support from the Black Panthers. The second was to Jesse Jackson, in which she pledged half of any proceeds from her libel trial against Newsweek to Jackson's Southern Christian Leadership Conference for Jackson to spend as he saw fit, although Jean listed a number of causes that she hoped he'd choose to share the money with, including Cesar Chavez, American Indians, and the families of black militants. Jean obsessed over the stories that had questioned her child's paternity, and she focused much of her ire on the original rumor monger, Joyce Haber. Jean was not upset by the insinuation that her baby was black. She was upset that a lie about her now dead baby had been circulated and continued to circulate, especially in right-wing publications, by a media that heavily implied that there was something wrong with a white, famous woman carrying a not-entirely-white baby. One night, after having too much to drink, Jean managed to call Joyce Haber at home. When the gossip columnist answered, Jean blurted out, 
This is Jean Seberg. How are your children? How does it feel to be a murderer? I don't know who your sources are, but they are wrong. Better watch out, lady. You goofed. Before hanging up, Jean threatened to send Haber a fetus in the mail. A few days later, Nina's body was put on display at a funeral home in Marshalltown. Jean insisted that the body of her daughter be publicly viewable for two days, and she hired a photographer to document the corpse. In the late afternoon of the second day, a service was held. Romain Gary did not come to Iowa to attend the funeral. Neither did anyone Jean had worked with in Hollywood, with the exception of her acting teacher, Peyton Price. Price had tried to convince some of Jean's sometime friends and acquaintances to make the trip, but no one would. Jean was now the subject of jokes in the movie colony. She didn't care about any of that. What really angered her is that no major publications covered her daughter's funeral. They were happy to run gossip about the pregnancy, and thanks to Ramon's open letter, Nina's death had been written about internationally. The funeral was Jean's way of taking back the narrative, of trying to set the record straight. But nobody cared. In the weeks after the funeral, Jean hung around Marshalltown, where she bought a farm, which she envisioned as a retirement property. She also bought a house and left an endowment for it to be used as housing for black athletes attending the local college. After almost two months in Iowa, she decided it was time to go back to Paris. On the way, she stopped in Chicago, where she attended a service presided over by Jesse Jackson. Then she went to visit a lawyer in New York who told her the truth about her plans to sue Newsweek for libel. It was going to be very expensive, maybe costing Jean a million dollars. And it would take a long time for her to achieve satisfaction, maybe 10 years. He asked me if the bitterness was worth it, Jean later remembered. That is when I cracked up. In November 1970, Jean checked into a mental health clinic in Paris. It would be the first of several attempts to pull herself together. But the outside world kept intruding. After consulting with American lawyers, Jean and Gary decided to file a lawsuit in France, instead of the United States, against Newsweek. In a French trial, they hoped, the opposite side wouldn't have cause to air the former married couple's dirty laundry as a defense because the standard of proving defamation was different. In France, the plaintiffs would only have to prove that Newsweek had invaded their privacy and made Jean look bad. But Newsweek had already bought from Dorothy Jamal letters that Jean had sent to Hakim. Incensed that the magazine was doubling down on their portrayal of Jean not as a woman with a lifelong passion for civil rights, but as a white girl with a passing sexual fancy for black dudes, 
Jean pressed her friends to write letters that could be submitted as evidence that Jean's political activism had nothing to do with what may or may not have happened in her bedroom. That fall, Jean got an unsolicited visit from Hakim Jamal, who had been traveling in Morocco with a new woman in his life, Gail Ann Benson, when Dorothy Jamal had contacted him and demanded financial help with the six Jamal children who she was raising back in Los Angeles. Jamal figured Jean might be good for a loan, so he and Gail flew to Paris and showed up at the apartment she still shared with Gary, who wouldn't tell Jamal where Jean was. Eventually, he found her at the clinic. She looked terrible, Jamal remembered. She was, according to Jamal, listening to a recording of Nina's funeral and weeping. She told Hakeem that she was crying for him, too. Jamal said he stayed with her for hours. I wish, he said later, in an interview that appeared in a Compton newspaper, I wish I could have been the father of her child. Jean was released from the clinic before Jamal left Paris, and they spent a drunken night together. He boasted that while in her bedroom, he hit Jean and made her rip up photos of her little girl and told her, you killed that motherfucking baby. You killed that little fucking piece of rubber with them goddamn pills. How many pills do you think it takes to kill an embryo? Jean confirmed to multiple acquaintances that she and Jamal had had a fight and that he, quote, took a couple of swipes at me. Soon after Jamal's visit, Jean went back to the clinic, Jamal and Gail left Paris, and Jean anonymously sent Dorothy Jamal a check for $700. In 1972, Gail Ann Benson was murdered, and a year later, Hakeem Jamal was too. Jean believed, and was horrified by, a report she heard that Jamal was killed by a rival black radical who didn't approve of his current mistress, who was white. At this point, Jean started to apparently revise her memory of Jamal, essentially martyring him in her recollections of him. In 1978, in an article in a French newspaper, she would refer to him as, quote, the most beautiful man whoever walked the earth in our time. By early December, she was back at her apartment, and one day she got a visit from an American actor friend, Bob Logan. Logan saw how many pills Jean was taking. Pills for anxiety, pills to give her an appetite, pills to make her throw up. And he boldly suggested she flush them all down the toilet and try the regimen that he used to stay fit and sane, a healthy diet and daily exercise. Jean agreed, and over the next few weeks, with daily bike rides and meals inspired by the way Logan ate, Jean lost a layer of bloat that she had accumulated, and she started moving towards the light at the end of the tunnel. And then two things happened only one of which Jean found out about immediately. Jean read the new English version of a book Gary had published a few months earlier in French called White Dog, 
and she was easily able to recognize it as her ex-husband's scathing account of her own tragic activism. Categorizing White Dog as a fictionalized memoir, Gari hadn't changed their names. Gari used the story of his and Jean's adoption of what turned out to be a racist dog as a container to talk about the naive efforts of Jean and other celebrities to participate in the civil rights movement. As the New York Times described the book, quote, Miss Seberg appears most often in gatherings of white liberals and black activists, and her most frequent occupation is signing checks. Jean felt betrayed, called her ex-husband my homegrown Joyce Haber and wrote to Peyton Price that the book reeked of, quote, the hatred of someone who is incapable of loving anyone or anything except fictitiously, and that I know to be a fact. She vowed that Roman would no longer have any control over her. The unseen hand behind the real Joyce Haber was still at it. Four days after Christmas in 1970, the FBI placed Gene Seberg on their administrative index, also known as security index, at priority three. This was a list of people perceived to be so dangerous that they would be imprisoned in the event of a national emergency. Despite the betrayal of White Dog, Gene was already committed to star in another film directed by Roman Gary called Kill, or sometimes Kill, 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 with James Mason. Mason would play a double-dealing Interpol agent, and Jean would play his wife, who becomes involved with an American narcotics officer in an international drug thriller which Gary promised would have, quote, 27 cadavers. The film didn't really need to have a woman in it. It was a man's film. Mason said. He thought Gary had cast Jean in the film just to give her something to work on. I haven't been able to see this movie, but the clips of it on YouTube that include Jean show her frightened and hysterical. According to Jean's biographer, David Richards, there's a scene early on in which Mason mocks her for being, quote-unquote, into blackness, and in response... Jean fires a gun at her husband. In October 1971, after a trial that dragged out for six months, the French court declared that Gary was wrong to blame Newsweek magazine for having, quote-unquote, murdered Jean's baby daughter. But the court did acknowledge that the magazine had violated their privacy. They had sued for $100,000. They were awarded... $11,000. It was a moral victory, but a disappointing settlement. And for Jean, it felt like nothing was settled. She'd continue to fixate on Newsweek and its role in destabilizing her life for the rest of her life. In 1972, Jean would have her last mainstream success and last substantial acting salary with a film called The French Conspiracy, which is also known as The Assassination or Plot. Written by blacklisted American screenwriter Ben Barsman, this was another international ensemble thriller, 
this one based on the real disappearance of Mehdi Ben Barka. Jean wore a Jane Fonda-style short brown wig to play a leftist activist, and the opening sequences feature Jean in character at a real anti-war march in a French suburb. Though The New Yorker called the movie a textbook demonstration of how not to make a political movie, it was a hit in France, and its director bragged that it was the last film in which Jean was, quote, truly pretty. The health kick that Jean had subscribed to in late 1970 had been abandoned by 1972, when Jean was back on a wide variety of pills. With no work in the offering, her days were scheduled around her nightlife. One night at the discotheque, 33-year-old Jean met Dennis Barry, the 27-year-old who would become her third and last husband. Barry was the son of John Barry, a director who had worked with Orson Welles' Mercury Theater and had directed John Garfield in He Ran All the Way. John Barry had then moved his family to France when he was blacklisted in the 1950s. 18-year-old Dennis Barry had participated in the protests during May 1968. And now, nine years later, he was trying to graduate from moderately successful actor into directing his own movies. Jean and Dennis's attraction was immediate, but Roman didn't approve. He told Jean, in front of Dennis, that she was destroying herself and that she was heading for an early death. He told her she'd be a drunk and probably kill herself by the time she was 40. Not wanting to listen to her ex-husband turned father figure, Jean took Dennis to Vegas, where she married him three weeks after their first meeting. Dennis then moved into Jean's half of the apartment that she still shared with Vermont. Young and enthusiastic about movies, Dennis was at first an extremely positive creative influence on Jean. And she helped Dennis get a grant so that he could make a movie that he had written with Jean in mind, called The Great Frenzy. First, to make some money, Jean appeared in a Spanish B-movie called The Corruption of Chris Miller. She used the salary from this to buy a new apartment for she and Dennis to share, not attached to romance, but still in the same building. But soon after that, the honeymoon period started to end. Jean went more than a year without working, and Dennis was unable to get any of his movies made. Jean had to take a part in a TV movie with Kirk Douglas to pay the bills. On the set, she reportedly mused to Douglas, Sometimes I look back to the days I was making St. Joan, and I think how much better it would have been if I had really burned at the stake. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
After Jane Fonda returned from Vietnam in mid-1972, President Richard Nixon ordered the CIA and the Justice Department to study transcripts of the radio broadcasts she had made in Hanoi in search of something, anything, that would allow them to bring her up on charges. After two months, Nixon was advised that Fonda had, quote, limited her advice to pleas for ending the bombing and didn't urge defections. The FBI reviewed Jane's files internally and couldn't find cause to continue their surveillance of her. As one reviewing agent put it, quote, there are more dangerous characters around needing our attention. Unless the Department of Justice orders us to continue, these investigations should be closed. The basis for investigation appears to be, pick someone you dislike and start investigating. This should have been the end of the campaign to paint Jane Fonda as an enemy of her own country. But it was actually almost the beginning. And she was getting it from both sides. The FBI did not stop their surveillance of her. In the summer of 1972, Pat Nixon spoke out against Jane, and at the same time, her husband's opponent, George McGovern, distanced himself from Jane's support, as he was worried that her reputation as being anti-American would damage him. In September came an attack from the far, far left. Though Jean-Luc Godard's Tout va bien had premiered in France in spring, its U.S. debut was scheduled for the New York Film Festival. Godard and Jean-Pierre Goron brought the film to New York with a surprise supplement, Letter to Jane, a 52-minute epistolary essay film in which Godard and Goron take turns deconstructing a photograph of Jane taken in Hanoi. Of all of the photographs Godard and Goron could have focused on, they did not pick the most incendiary. Jane was not wearing the helmet or sitting on the gun in this one. But instead, she was documented looking with apparent concern at a Vietnamese person who was seen only from behind. Another Vietnamese person is seen in the photograph in the out-of-focus distance, looking on. Godard and Garon used this seemingly innocuous photo as the starting point for a disquisition on power and stardom. The French filmmakers trade off the narration of the film in heavily accented and monotone English. Letter to Jane is extremely dense and difficult to take in, not least because the filmmakers use repetition as a rhetorical device, and while they state over and over again that their intention is to find answers to questions that will allow them to, quote, see clearly, the style of their narration seems designed to send heads spinning. Here's an excerpt beginning at about 13 minutes in. While Garant and Godard are speaking, the viewer sees a black screen, then the still photograph of Jane in Vietnam, then a black screen, then the photograph again, then black again, then a still image of Jane in Tuva Bien. 
There is another problem too, and one that we can't avoid. We are both men who have made tout va bien, and you are a woman. In Vietnam, the question is not put that way, but here it is. And as a woman, you undoubtedly will be hurt a little, or a lot, by the fact that we are going to criticize a little, or a lot, your way of acting in this photograph. Hurt, because once again, as usual, men are finding ways to attack women. If for no other reason, we hope that you will be able to come and answer our letter by talking with us, as we go reading it in two or three places in the U.S. In the U.S. and in Europe, it's true that things are still, or have already become, that way. And we are, as you, submerged in some pretty troubled water, through which this photograph can help us to see clearly. This is where we have to start from, from you in the U.S., from us in Paris, from you and us in Paris, from you in Vietnam, from us in Paris, looking at you in Vietnam, from us going to the U.S., and from everyone here in the theater listening to us and looking at you. We are starting from all this. It is organized in a certain way and functions in a certain way. We want to discuss it all, starting from there. To start from Tuvabien, to go to Vietnam, to come back to Tuvabien, in other words, to come back to Vietnam in the theater where Tuvabien is being shown, and afterward to go back home, and tomorrow to go back to the factory. In order to discuss all that, we are slipping this photograph under people's noses for a second look, since the Vietnamese and you already slipped it there once. In other words, we ask, and we are asking ourselves, did we really look at this photograph? What did we see in it? And beneath its question, we discover another question. For example, how did we look at this photograph? How did our eyes function in regard to this photograph? And what makes them glance that way instead of another? And still another question, what makes our voice interpret this glance in a certain way instead of another? Tuvabia asks all of these questions. These questions can all be summed up in the big question of the role of the intellectuals in the revolutionary struggles. Or rather, this big well-known... Letter to Jane is a lot of things, but one of the most interesting parts consists of a kind of pocket history of white movie actors performing condescension and pity towards those pictured to be lesser than them. Referring to Jane alternately as the militant and the actress, Garant and Godard complain that the expression on her face in the photograph is one she's used on screen before. In Tu va bien, to name one film, and Clute, to name another, and they trace this facial expression back to her father and his performance in Young Mr. Lincoln. The implication is that Jane not only lacks credibility as a quote-unquote militant, but that she's a repetitive and derivative actress, too. The filmmakers use this kind of analysis to set up their thesis, which is, essentially, that Jane Fonda's activism is a quote-unquote masquerade, and an unconvincing one. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Jane does not mention Letter to Jane in her autobiography. She describes Tu va bien as a movie she found incomprehensible in script form, and which she ultimately made under duress. The opposition to her actions in Vietnam and the death threats Jane received that summer did not stop her from joining Tom Hayden at a massive anti-war protest at the Republican National Convention in Miami in association with Vietnam veterans against the war. 
Over a thousand Vietnam vets marched, led by three wheelchair-bound soldiers, including Ron Kovic, a veteran who was shot on the battlefield in Vietnam and paralyzed from the chest down when a bullet traveled through his lung into his spine. On the last night of the convention, while police in the streets arrested and gassed protesters who refused to disperse, Kovic went inside the convention hall and tried to appeal directly to the convention's attendees. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me, people? Do you hear me when I say this war is a crime? Do you hear me when I say that I am in pain from this war? Do you hear me when I say I am not as bitter about my wound as I am bitter about men who had lied to the people of this country? Do you hear me tonight? Can I break through your complacency? Can I break through your solid wall of complacency tonight? Can I have an inch? Can I have a moment of your compassion for the human beings that are suffering? At another point during the protests, Another veteran who said that he had lost his ability to shed tears for the war praised Kovic for being able to cry and thus holding on to his manhood in spite of his injuries. Jane was moved by Kovic and his story and his struggle. She started thinking about the idea of using the story of a man physically crippled but emotionally enlightened by the war as a vehicle for turning her political ideas into cinema. The following summer, she'd pay a friend, Nancy Dowd, who herself had had a romance with a disabled vet, to start writing a screenplay. In the weeks after her return from Hanoi, two films in which Jane had appeared, a documentary about the FTA and Steelyard Blues, the counterculture comedy she had starred in with her FTA partners Donald Sutherland and Peter Boyle, were both unceremoniously released and both quickly disappeared from theaters. There were no offers on the table for Hollywood movies. And in fact, Jane did not appear in a Hollywood film for four years after Steel Yard Blues' 1972 release. The only movie she made during this period was A Doll's House, directed by Joseph Losey, a former Hollywood studio filmmaker and member of the Communist Party, who had been working in England and Europe since being blacklisted in the early 1950s. In the 60s, Losey was probably the most active and successful of American directors working in exile due to the blacklist. His filmography during this period includes three collaborations with Harold Pinter, which won prizes at the Cannes Film Festival and British Academy Awards. In the years immediately before reaching out to Jane Fonda, Losey had made three films with Elizabeth Taylor and or her husband, Richard Burden, including the very weird and wonderful Secret Ceremony. Jane, who believed she had been quasi-blacklisted, or graylisted, was in need of money to support herself, Tom, and the child that they just found out that Jane was carrying. And she agreed to star in A Doll's House, which was a low-budget movie, for less than her usual salary. Losey's casting of Jane, for better or for worse, the most newsworthy of all Hollywood actresses, in this period piece, raised some eyebrows. Losey would say that, initially, he believed that Jane's politics made her perfect to play Nora, 
a woman who braves society's disapproval when she walks out on her family after coming to understand that her marriage is based on illusions and lies. Losey claimed that another actress in the movie, Delphine Seyrig, convinced Jane before they started shooting that the script, which excised some of the play, was no good, and that Losey himself was a male chauvinist pig. According to Losey, while they were shooting, Jane and Delphine would hole up together every night making notes about the changes they wanted to the script, and in the morning, Jane would present Losey with these notes. Losey claimed an actual battle of the sexes broke out on set, with the women and men dividing themselves from one another antagonistically. Jane acknowledged this in an interview with Molly Haskell. The men in the cast were drunk most evenings, she said. They painted us as a conspiracy of dykes. They pitted us against each other. Losey is supposed to have said that Fonda and Seyrig's collaboration was responsible for the, quote, unwanted intrusion of lesbianism into the story, which he then had to cut around. With her script notes, Jane said, What I wanted to do was to show from my years in France that women can have an external facade that seems frivolous and superficial, but is actually serious. Nora was a vital, intelligent woman, waiting to explode. When she would present her ideas to Losey, Jane said, The strangest thing happened. I found I had to become Nora with Joe Losey. I would bat my eyelashes at him to make it seem to him what we wanted were his ideas. It was becoming evident that a woman could more easily advance her own agenda if she worked behind a facade that seemed to be friendly and appealing to men. Sarig would later direct a short documentary in which Fonda discussed in French the sexism she had encountered in the film industry. The title of the film translated to Be Pretty, But Shut Up. That fall, Jane and Tom Hayden decided to go in for a joint makeover, with both shedding the visual signifiers that had marked them as members of the counterculture. They believed that they would have more of an impact if they worked within the system, instead of fighting against it, and they decided to look the part. So Tom cut his hair and started wearing suits, and Jane acquired what she described as a couple of wrinkle-proof conservative outfits. As Tom Hayden soon thereafter told the New York Times, you can become a prisoner of the image you were. I'm learning to talk to the middle now. I don't think we ever really won anything in the 60s. Then, in January 1973, they did the most mainstream thing imaginable. They got married. On July 7, 1973, Jane gave birth to her second child, a son whom she and Tom named Troy Garrity, using Tom's mother's maiden name so that the kid could avoid the association of either of his famous parents' last names. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. 
on every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the spring of 1973, the remaining POWs in Vietnam were sent home, and a few of them were sent on a media tour, organized by the Pentagon, in which they made racist statements about their Vietnamese captors and bashed anti-war activists as traitors. One anonymous source told Newsweek magazine tales of rampant torture inflicted by the Vietnamese against the American POWs. Asked about this in a TV interview, Jane allowed that while she was sure there were, quote, incidents of torture, she expressed doubt that any of the POWs were subjected to systematic torture by their captors. David Hoffman, the POW who had shown Jane that his arm was healed and had asked her to give that message to his wife, then went on TV in America and said that he hadn't wanted to meet with Jane at all, but his captors had tortured him, hanging him by his broken arm until he relented. Jane didn't believe his claims. And when she was writing her autobiography a few years ago, she met with other men who were held prisoner alongside Hoffman, all of whom said they saw no evidence of torture before Jane's visit, and that there were so many volunteers to meet Jane Fonda in the camp that there would have been no need to coerce anyone to do it. Historian Mary Hirschberger, who wrote about Hoffman's accusations extensively in her book Jane Fonda's War, also compiled evidence of other statements made by Hoffman and testimony from other prisoners held with Hoffman that cast doubt on his claims of torture, which he has refused to discuss since his initial statement in 1973. Jane would describe her statement questioning whether there had been systematic torture in Vietnam to be, quote, a mistake I deeply regret. She'd later find out that there was, in fact, systematic torture in the camps, at least prior to 1969. But David Hoffman's claims that he had been tortured because he didn't want to meet Jane Fonda didn't hold up. Historian Hirschberger wrote that Hoffman, who had signed a letter opposing the war while he was in captivity, may have been trying to save his own reputation in the military, which he intended to stay enlisted in after his return to the U.S., Were falsehoods and distortions circulated about Jane Fonda by Nixon and his loyalists who wanted to put forward the idea that the war in Vietnam hadn't been a total failure and found it useful to scapegoat a movie star who had acted naively? Yes. Did Jane Fonda also make her own mistakes in her actions and statements that begged to make the PR situation even worse? Definitely. In the fall of 1973, she attempted to take back control of her own narrative. Reporter Jack Anderson, having gotten a hold of some of Jane's FBI files, shared them with Fonda. These files revealed that the FBI had opened her mail, had monitored her every financial transaction with the cooperation of her bank, and had even surveilled Vanessa Vadim's kindergarten class. 
In October 1973, with the support of the ACLU, Jane held a press conference announcing that she was suing the Nixon administration, including Nixon himself and Henry Kissinger, for their participation in what she called an organized systematic attempt by the Nixon administration to discredit me, to make us appear irresponsible, dangerous, and foul-mouthed. In 1979, the FBI would release all of its files on Jane, along with a mea culpa for violating her civil liberties and she dropped the lawsuit. Jane herself believed that most of her critics were less upset about the specifics of the Hanoi Jane incident than they were by her transformation from sex kitten into activist. The revolution she represented was incompatible with the sexual revolution, because that revolution hadn't been about liberation after all. At least, not for women but her empowerment was easier for her to talk about than it was for her to practice. By now, she was devoting nearly all of her energy to supporting her husband. And just as she had invested her celebrity capital in Vadim, and he had in turn spent it on Barbarella, a film that ultimately contrasted with Jane's real interests, now she invested her celebrity into turning Tom Hayden into a household name so that Hayden could eclipse her as a political force by running for office. The extent to which Jane gave herself over to Tom Hayden was somewhat shocking. While she was pregnant with Troy, Hayden convinced her to sell her small Laurel Canyon house, which she loved, and move with him into a shabby two-family house in Santa Monica. There, they would live like the quote-unquote regular people who, as a politician, Tom hoped to speak for. They would save money by renting the bottom floor out to another couple. Jane was discouraged from using a dishwasher or washing machine. They slept on a mattress on the floor, and Jane had to sneak joints behind the back of disapproving Tom. And Tom would not allow her to hire anyone to help her with the new baby which forced Jane to jump headfirst into parenting in a way that she hadn't with her daughter, Vanessa. Jane was still the primary financial contributor to their household, and she could have used the income that a Hollywood hit would have brought in. Instead, Jane devoted her time to helping promote and refine her husband's image as a post-hippie mainstream Democrat. She employed Hollywood publicists to help generate profile stories on her husband, and she'd sit with him in interviews. It became apparent that Tom had helped shape Jane's politics, and Jane had helped make Tom ready for prime time. Some observers did not feel this was an equal trade. Many people thought Tom was using Jane. Tom Hayden quipped Jane's old friend Gore Vidal, gives opportunism a bad name. Jane seemed like a different person when he was around, her friend said, totally subservient to this man who seemed, sometimes, to not even like her very much. Jane couldn't see it. Jane may have been lending her celebrity to her comparatively uncharismatic, wonkish husband, But she had celebrity to spare, and being with Tom helped to make her activism less controversial. 
that Jane Fonda was no longer considered as dangerous as she had been just two years earlier became evident in April 1974, when Jane, Tom, baby Troy, and cinematographer Haskell Wexler went to Vietnam to make a documentary. Called Introduction to the Enemy, the idea of the film was to humanize the Vietnamese. By the time they arrived in North Vietnam, the area was no longer being bombed. This second visit to Vietnam, undertaken as a newlywed with her husband and infant son in tow, attracted little to no negative attention to Jane. Four months after the trip, Nixon resigned. Soon after that, Hollywood's doors opened to Jane once again. It started with a role for Jane in George Cukor's star-studded The Blue Bird. Tom spent a few days with Jane on the Leningrad location of that movie, and then he flew to Washington, where a friend convinced Tom to enter an upcoming Senate race in California. In the aftermath of Watergate, it seemed like there was room for new political actors coming from the left. By the time Jane had returned from the movie shoot, Tom had organized a campaign office. Jane campaigned hard for her husband, speaking on his behalf on the radio nearly every night. But because they needed the money, in the middle of the campaign, she filmed a comedy, Fun with Dick and Jane, with George Siegel as Dick and Jane as Jane. This satire, in which a married couple turns to a life of crime to pay off their debts and support their upper-middle-class lifestyle when the husband loses his job, was directed by Ted Kotcheff, later of Rambo and Weekend at Bernie's fame. And for the most part, it's wacky and smart. It features what appears to be a more relaxed, confident, and joyous Jane Fonda than any film of the previous decade. And honestly, maybe ever. Essentially playing the no-bullshit straight woman to Siegel's neurotic, here Jane gets better, tart one-liners and sexier costumes than she'd had since Barbarella. We know from Jane's own writings that, at age 40, she remained insecure about her body. But you wouldn't know it from the way she saunters through one scene in this movie in a bikini top and belly chain. After having spent much of the previous decade trying to repel the male gaze so that her voice could be heard, with fun with Dick and Jane, Jane Fonda re-embraced her long-haired, sexy comedic movie star roots and merged this easily digestible image with her populist, if less popular, politics. She could look like a sex object while playing a woman who uses her brain, in a film that amounted to an attack on, as Jane put it, the evils of consumerism. Thus, the Hollywood movie was in sync with Tom Hayden's politics. But only one of those things was a hit with consumers. Fun with Dick and Jane was a major success, and it restored Fonda to the list of Hollywood's bankable stars. Tom Hayden didn't survive the Democratic primary. Jane spun the 40% of the vote that Tom received as a progressive victory, because after all, he was a new left radical who just a few years earlier had been indicted for conspiracy for his role as a member of the Chicago 7. Jane had funded Tom's $500,000 losing bid for Senate herself. 
With Dick and Jane in the can, Jane Fonda was able to mount two projects that she'd been hoping to make for a while. The first was Julia, based on a memoir by Lillian Hellman. Jane would play Hellman, and Vanessa Redgrave would play Julia. Much time had passed since both actresses had been on the same radical path, when Jane saw Redgrave as an inspiration. Jane, by this point, was trying to mainstream her image, and she now distanced herself from Redgrave's politics, which were about as far left as you could get. The pair agreed not to talk politics on set, and their collaboration was a great success. Julia became one of the most acclaimed movies of 1977, with Redgrave and Jason Robards, who played Dashiell Hammett, both winning Oscars. Jane herself was nominated for Best Actress. She lost to Diane Keaton and Annie Hall, but the nomination itself was a sign that Hollywood had welcomed her home. Now it was time to throw her regained capital behind the movie she had wanted to make ever since meeting Ron Kovic for the first time. Coming Home would be the first film produced by Jane's new production company, and though her partner, Bruce Gilbert, would be the one awarded the producing credit, it was a movie that Jane Fonda would guide every step of the way, from the inception of the idea all the way to the Academy Awards stage. The screenplay Jane had commissioned from Nancy Dowd was, she decided, too dark. She convinced Waldo Salt, a former blacklistee who had won the Oscar for writing Midnight Cowboy and who was working with Kovic on his autobiography, to develop a new script on spec. This was against the advice of Salt and Fonda's mutual agent, Mike Medavoy, who called the concept the worst, least commercial idea I have ever heard of. Especially since, as he knew firsthand, theater owners in certain parts of the country were still uninterested in booking Jane Fonda movies. Jane hired Haskell Wexler as cinematographer, and Wexler brought the script to director Hal Ashby. Ashby was in the midst of an incredible run, having in the past five years directed Harold and Maude, The Last Detail, and Shampoo. Ashby agreed to direct Coming Home, even though he'd have only six weeks to prepare. It was because of Hal Ashby that John Voigt, whom the studio had agreed to cast as Jane's character's conservative husband, got the part he really wanted as the paralyzed-from-the-waist-down love interest. For the part Voigt was vacating, Ashby gave the nod to Bruce Dern, who had been working for a decade and had managed to accumulate a stellar filmography and no power. Jane Fonda was a movie star, Dern recalled. I was just Bruce Dern, a fucking wacko. What Ashby didn't know when he had agreed to the accelerated schedule was that Salt had completed only a fraction of the script, and then Salt had a heart attack. Ashby called his usual editor, Robert C. Jones, and asked him to try to do something with what Salt had left behind. The producers and actors pitched in, submitting their own pages, which Ashby would cobble together as a starting point, and then on the day, the actors would largely improvise. Then novelist Rudolf Wurlitzer came in to punch up a few scenes in the middle of the shoot, but he refused to take credit 
because he idolized salt, and if anyone found out the writer had been incapacitated before he finished the job, the movie could have been shut down. In Coming Home, Jane's character, Sally, goes to work at a veterans hospital when her husband, Bob, played by Dern, goes to Vietnam. There she befriends and eventually falls in love with Luke, the paralyzed Marine played by Voigt. Jane incorporated into the story her experiences with surveillance and monitoring by the FBI and her knowledge of the protest movement. But these things were displaced onto the Luke character. Her character makes no political statements and does nothing any ordinary housewife wouldn't do, with the exception of falling in love with a man who isn't her husband. But this seems reasonable within the context of the narrative because of the way Bob treats Sally before and after he goes to Vietnam, and the cataclysmic changes the war is shown to cause amongst everyone connected to it. Early in Coming Home, Jane's character Sally has goodbye sex with Bob before he ships off to Vietnam. The staging of the scene with an uncomfortable-looking Sally pinned under Bob's perfunctory thrusting recalls the scene in Clute in which Bree checks her watch under her john. Except that Sally doesn't bother faking an orgasm, indicating that that kind of pleasure is not expected to be a part of this marital sex equation. Sally's sexual awakening and its place as just one element of a slow process of liberation that involves living alone for the first time, buying her own car for the first time, getting a job, etc., is as much the subject of coming home as Vietnam is. Coming Home's most famous scene depicts the first time Voigt's veteran and Fonda's housewife have sex. It shows idealized sex as necessarily collaborative. Sally has to help Luke get his bed ready. They have to have a conversation about where she can touch and what he can feel. And unlike her sex with her husband, here she has a big orgasm, which we are to read as being authentic. The scene ends with Luke rising from between Sally's legs, Sally kissing Luke gratefully, and saying, that's never happened to me before. This was the scene over which Fonda and Ashby had the greatest conflict. Ron Kovic had told Jane, that being paralyzed from the chest down really helped my sex life. And Jane saw an opportunity to show how such an experience of war could cause a man to redefine himself. Is he a gung-ho guy who's going over to get the gooks and then come back and fuck his brains out? Jane asked. Or is he the guy who is more sensitive and knows how to use other parts of himself, like his hands and his mouth? As part of her research, Jane had spoken with the girlfriend of a veteran with an injury similar to the characters. This girlfriend had told Jane, in earshot of Ashby, that though there was no rhyme or reason to it, and it had little to do with direct stimulation, her partner could occasionally get an erection and, quote, 
It will last for four hours. Jane was annoyed that Ashby had heard this. As she put it, he wanted penetration. I wanted Luke's penis not to work. When Ashby shot the sex scene first with body doubles, he had them perform girl-on-top intercourse, with the female straddling the male double in bed. When Jane learned this, she was livid. She cannot be riding him that way, Jane blurted out. She can't. He can't get an erection. When it was time to shoot the scene with the main actors for facial close-ups, Jane refused to replicate this shot. Ride him, damn it! Ashby yelled out. Ride him! Move your body! With John Voigt as her accomplice, Jane was insistent on performing as the receiver of oral sex only. Ashby would not be able to cut together his version of the scene, and it would be Jane's version, which totally bucked convention by focusing on female pleasure, that made it into the finished film. The men in Jane's life did not approve. Henry Fonda told Jane she'd have to cut the sex scene. It was, in his mind, completely pornographic. Coming home sex scene is not at all graphic. But American movies, even in the late 1970s, were not in the habit of showing female pleasure this flagrantly. But Jane could deal with her father's disapproval. She expected her husband to be proud of her for dealing with a veteran experience in such a sympathetic way. What she found was that Tom Hayden, while benefiting from Jane Fonda's stardom in so many ways, still held a grudge against Hollywood and the power she was able to exercise there. Tom walked out of a rough cut screening angrily, whispering to Jane as he passed her, Nice try. The impact and legacy of coming home would last a lot longer than Tom Hayden, as we will see in our final installment of Gene and Jane next week. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, You Must remember this podcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode, which include information about our sources, music cues, and more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at Remember This Pod and find us on Facebook and Instagram too. And if you haven't already, rating and reviewing the show in iTunes and subscribing to it there really helps other people find it. You can also find us on virtually any other podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. 
Join us then, won't you? Good night.